You know, it's amazing when the community of God gets together, the, the truth is, is that we are called to do more on a Sunday morning than just share stories, teach, and worship. We're called to engage in and, and open our hearts to be known and to make known. We are called to life together. And Ephesians is really a great picture of that because it is Paul's letter to the church. It's his crown jewel, if you will, right? We've talked about this quite a bit in our study, that Ephesians, the church in Ephesus, is probably the most taught and educated church that Paul ever planted because of the time he spent there. He spent himself almost three full years in Ephesus teaching on a daily basis, right? There's all kinds of evidence that Paul just sort of integrated his heart and life into Ephesus in such a way that they were taught and spent time with him more than any of his other churches. And so the letter that he writes them for under house arrest from Rome, this letter of Ephesians, is really a, a letter to this church, this jewel of his that basically says, look, I am facing most likely certain death. I hope to come to you again, but if it doesn't happen, you are the church. Go and live the things that I have taught you and that you know to be true about who God is. It's really a call for the church. It's a reconciliation of Christ reconciling the world to himself and then reconciling us to each other as the church. It's called a unity. It's a call to be more <clears throat> than what we are as individuals. And we started this journey, <clears throat> excuse me, back in September as a look at Ephesians as this letter of grace, this gospel of grace, this good news, this picture of who we were, yet who we are in Christ, that God has been reconciling the world to himself. We finally jumped back into it next week, and we or last week, and we jumped into it into this pit of despair. Three verses that are totally true, but are, that are deeply difficult to hear. And I told you last week, we were going to sort of leave everything there. We were going to park the boat on this island of darkness. But really, as a believer, we know there's hope grace that we need and what God has done for us. And so last week, that's exactly what we did. We looked at the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, and we found out several things. One, we found out that we were dead in our sin. And dead in our sin means that we are separated, alienated from God right now in the here and now in the moment. That we are his enemies and we are separated from him and that we are fully dead. It also means that we are fully dead eternally. That once we draw our last breath here, that apart from Christ, there is only death, separation from God, and hell. Right? Those things are the reality. And so Paul says, this is who you were. You were dead in your transgressions and sin. And he said, even more so, because of that condition, you are slave to the world and you are slave to the ruler of the world who is Satan. So right there in chapter 2, he says, not only are you dead in your sin, but you are slave to the ways of the world and you are slave to its ruler, which is Satan, and you live in conformity and you live in an attempt to compare your life to the world around you because you're slave to its giving, its sinful nature, all of those pieces. And he says, because of those things, you are due the nature of God's wrath. And those are the first three verses of Ephesians. And they are crummy, but they are real, right? And we talked about them in depth. I told you at the end of last week that we were going to run headlong into this movement of grace, which is exactly what we're going to pick up. Paul, of course, doesn't just stop his conversation in three verses like we do. Paul follows this up with this great truth of the gospel, which is where we're going to be this morning. What is the floodgate of grace that follows this deep reality of despair apart from Christ? Well, what we're going to learn this morning in three answers to three questions that Paul's going to kind of throw out there is essentially where does our hope come from, right? Where does hope, if we're living in this place of darkness and despair, where does our hope come from, right? 
what exactly did God do for us and why did he do it, right? And so what we're going to see this morning answers to those three questions. If this place, this darkness, this thing is real, right, then why do we have hope or where does it come from? What exactly did God do and why did he do it? And we're going to look at those in the next three verses. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 2. If you're going to use your phone, you're welcome to do that, uh, of course. We'd love for you to bring your Bible on Sunday. We're going to be in it every single week. We work through it. We Verse by verse, difficult chapter by difficult chapter. We don't skip a thing. We're moving through it all. So bring it, write in it. If you don't have one, keep the one that's right there. Um, it's a little hard to read. You've got to have good eyes, but it's there. So um, grab it. We're going to be in uh, Ephesians 2 four through seven this morning, but let's take a moment and let's pray before we open it up together. Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. You tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In fact, Lord, the Greek word there is theopunestos, which means the very breath of God. And so, Lord, we know that your word is your word, and having an encounter with it is to have an encounter with you. It is not something we take lightly. It is your breath. And so, Lord, when we read its words, we don't get to decide whether or not we like them and want to apply them. It becomes the very lifeline of which we operate as followers of Christ. Culture will come and go. It will push us one way or the other, but the word of God stands forever, and so, Lord, we stand upon it. So teach our hearts this morning from your word. Remind us who we were and show us who we are. Take a moment just as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. Some of these simple truths that we know to be real about who Christ is, ask God to re-imprint them on your heart. Ask him to teach your soul this morning. Take a moment and pray for the people beside you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Much the way we shared prayer requests this morning, we want to be a community that really deeply cares about the spiritual growth of each other. So even if you don't know that person or if you're new, just pray for him. Pray that God would move in him this morning, that maybe he would show himself. Uh, just if it's your husband or your wife or a friend or just a, a neighbor or someone sharing the row, just pray for somebody else this morning. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Take a moment and pray for that person around you. Lord, we ask you to take this word of yours and imprint it on our heart. Teach us this morning and let us run headlong into the floodgates of your beautiful grace and love. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. So let's look at those side by side. We're going to look at, uh, we'll read one through seven, but I want you to hear the first three we were last week. Remind yourself of where we've been. Uh, and as the church in Ephesus is getting this letter, they're being reminded of who they were apart from Christ, right? Sometimes as followers of Jesus, we have really short memories. We fail to remember what life was or what we are apart from Jesus. And so Paul's reminding them so that they'll understand who they are and as we'll see what their role is in the world. This is what he says, Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we are by nature objects of wrath. 
So that's where we left off last week, right? We are dead in our transgressions and sins, that our nature leads us down to a place where we are slaves to the ways of the world, where our movement is to try and gratify its sinful nature and its thoughts. We are ruled by the kingdom of the air, which is a, the king of this kingdom of the air, which is essentially saying Satan, and we are, because of that, do the nature of God's wrath. That is who we are, who everyone is, apart from Jesus. That's the stark reality of Scripture, right? We don't have to like it. doesn't make it less true. It's true. So this is what we're doing, what we're facing. Now, Paul follows that up immediately, of course, with this great set of truths. But because of God and because of his great love for us, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages... Um, we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So all of that condition, right, Paul exchanges for this. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, right? So here's what we've got. We've got this stark reality that Apart from Christ, no matter who you are, whether you're part of the church in Ephesus or whether you're a Gentile or whether you're a Jewish Christian or no matter who it is, right? Apart from Christ, whether it's you or it's me, we are facing a very stark reality and that is that we are fully dead. Dead in our transgressions and sin. There is no hope. We can do nothing to remedy our own situation. We are fully dead. We are slave to the world, slave to its master, Satan, and we are due the nature of God's wrath. That is every single person who lives apart from Jesus. Yes, your neighbor. Yes, your mom. Yes, the people down the street, across the globe. Anyone apart from Christ faces that reality. We don't like to say it. We wish it weren't true, but that is the reality in Scripture. So Paul says, this is the condition of even who you were. Remember who you were. As part of the church in Ephesus, before the gospel showed up, before I showed up and preached the gospel, before you surrendered your life to Christ, this is who you were. And so he gives these kind of setup, and then he's going to begin to transition. What we're going to find in this are three answers to some very distinct questions, which is if this is our reality, like, where does our hope come from? Now, we know it comes from, from Christ, but, but how so? So, like, where does our hope come from, for real? What exactly did God do for us in Jesus, and why did he do it? I mean, really, what did we do to earn it? And we're going to learn that we've done nothing, then why did God do it? And Paul's going to answer these questions in a really unique way. But the first is, if this is our condition, where does our hope come from? Like, where can it be? Well, this is what, what Paul sets us up. Verse 1, he says, as for you, right? So that's the setup. Here you are. But verse 2, we see this distinct change. But, right, because of his great love, or some of your versions may say, but God, because of his great love. So here's this great dichotomy, right? As for you, dead in your sin, but God in his great love. So where does our hope come from? Well, it can't come from you. Because your condition is dead. You are steeped in sin. You are broken. You are facing death and the wrath of God. That is the reality. You have done nothing and can do nothing to deserve it. Your condition is set. It is isolated. It is. You are fully dead, as we'll explain more in just a little bit. 
Our hope comes from something that is wholly outside of yourself. Our hope comes from where? From God and his great love who is rich in mercy. So what Paul says is that there really is no hope in you. You're not going to work yourself out of it. You're not going to wiggle your way out of it. You're not going to convince or argue or kind of earn your way out of it. You're not going to perform your way out of it. You're not going to do enough good things. You're not going to show up enough to to our church gatherings in Ephesus. You're not going to do enough nice things for your neighbor. You're not going to will yourself out of your condition. You're not going to try hard enough. God's not looking down going, hey, he's given really good effort. We'll bring him the rest of the way. There's nothing that you can do. You are absolutely fully dead. You have no hope but God, right? So verse 4 says, but God. And what do we learn about that God in that one verse? We learn about God, right, who says this, or Paul says this, because of his great love and who is rich in mercy. So our hope comes from God who has two distinct characteristics that bring us this hope. The first one, he is great in love. And the second one, he is rich in mercy. So God, in his incredible infinite holiness, has two distinct characteristics that bring us incredible hope in our state of full deadness. One, he is great at love. And two, he is rich in mercy. Two things that we are not. We are great in disobedience, and we are rich in sinful desire. That's the reality of us. We learned that last week, right? Apart from Christ, we are fully engaged in the world. It's sinful desires, it's cravings, the conformity, right? The desire to to compare our lives to other people. We are chasing pleasure for ourselves. We are great in disobedience and we are rich in sinful nature. But God has a distinctive characteristics that are wholly opposite than ours. He is great in love and rich in mercy. Now, we need God to be those things, right? We don't need God to be semi-wealthy in mercy. We need God to be abundantly the trillionaire of trillionaires of mercy. We need God to not be okay at love. Like, you know, you could probably describe me as that. I'm good at a lot of things. I'm okay at love, right? We need God to be great at love. Because why? Because we are so unlovable. Just read scripture, right? Look at, the, look at the Israelites as an example. God's chosen people who he adored at every moment and every turn, even when things were going well, they would so quickly turn their back on the one that loved them so well and they would choose the world. And what would God do? In God's loving kindness, in his hesed, which is the Greek or the Hebrew word for that, in his hesed, he would love them anyway. He would correct them, he would move them, but he would love them because even the Israelites, who were being guarded by God, who were being protected by God, pillars of fire, right? Manna on the ground. Were so bad at loving the God that was giving them great things that they couldn't even finish. God, who is great in love, never quit. Reality is you and I are very much the same way. We are really good at saying we love God when things are really easy. We're great at saying, Jesus, I love you, and all of my prayers, God, you are good, you are great. I'm terrible at showing it because I don't believe it when things are hard. My love turns directly for myself. I gather the things that I know and I go to protect them, and I turn my back on God as quickly as I say I love him. I'm terrible at love. I'm terrible at love to people. I'm worse at loving God because it's just all vocally. 
We are bad at love, and we are bad at mercy, right? Mercy is that part of God that, that does what we don't deserve. When someone asks for mercy, it means that you are due a penalty, and they don't give you whatever that penalty is. That's mercy. Have mercy on me, meaning I deserve to die for what I have done, right? Let's say you've committed this horrific crime in the 1500s, and you are laid out to be killed in front of all the people, and you cry for mercy from the ruler, and he says, fine, I'll pardon you. Why? Because he's merciful, not because you deserve it. You deserve, and I deserve, the wrath of God. We learned that last week. And there is a great day of judgment that is coming and we are due to stand before God and answer for every thought, action, deed that we've ever had and every single one of us will never be able to stand up and we're going to be due the penalty of that wrath which is eternal alienation from God which the Bible declares and calls hell. We can't gloss over it, pretend it doesn't exist. It is very true. Jesus describes it as lakes of sulfur and the gnashing of teeth and the most horrific place imaginable and that's what we're due. But God, who is great at love, even when we turn our back in him, is rich in mercy. So if this is the promise for those of us that are in Christ, that this is our condition, and this is, this is what our hope is in, right? That we can't do it. Our hope has to be in who God is through Christ, who is great at love and rich at mercy. What did he really do for us? Like, if I believe that God is great in love, and I believe he's rich in mercy, and I believe I deserve none of those things, yet he gives me Jesus, what exactly do I get? What does that mean? Does it just mean that I'm, I'm free from my sin and I can be a little bit clearer conscience here on earth? Does it mean that one day when I die, I'll, I'll go to heaven, and that's the extent of it? Well, Paul actually answers the question. He said, God who is rich in love, or who is great in love and rich in mercy, he did a couple of things. Verse 5, one, he made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, for it is grace by which you have been saved. And two, verse six, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So he says two things that God has done with his great love and his rich mercy. When you deserve to totally die and be separated from him both here on earth and eternally, God does something remarkable. He makes you alive in Christ and two, he raises you up in Christ. So what does it mean to be made alive in Christ? Well, in order to be made alive in Christ, we have to recognize that deadness that we've been talking about. And last week we explained it in two very distinct ways, which I've already mentioned. One, here on earth, we are alienated from God, separated from him, and we are not alive. Now you may be sitting here today saying, Trevor, I haven't come to church in a long time. I'm, I'll give you the fact that I may have sinned, but I feel very much alive. I'm drawing breath. I'm walking. I chose to drive here like I'm alive, right? And the answer is... No, you're actually not. Not in the way that Scripture talks about your life being fully alive. You may be drawing breath, but you're not living the full abundant life that God has promised you. You were made in his image, created by him, and promised this fullness of life, but sin, but you, but all of those things that we are slave to into the picture, and therefore we are not walking and living in harmony with God. We are separated from him. So we are chasing what? The ways of the world. We are slave to the world and we are guided by its ruler who is Satan. That is not life. Not the way scripture talks about it. 
So we are fully dead and alienated from God here on earth, and that actually carries a bigger promise. The promise is that does not stop when we die. When you draw your last breath, that alienation doesn't end and you vapor into dust. No, we have these spirits, the spiritual life that extends beyond death, and the promise of that death is that alienation continues. After that great day of judgment, we stand before God, and we have no one to hold us hold into account except ourselves for all the actions, thoughts, deeds, and things that we did that were opposite of God's incredible holiness. We stand condemned, and we're due the full nature of God's wrath, and that wrath is the continual separation from him, which is hell. That is death, and it's terrifying. And anyone apart from Christ faces those realities. But, right, but God, who is great in love and rich in mercy, has done two things for us with that greatness of love and richness of mercy. The first one, he has made us alive in Christ. So if that's our condition is dead, then when we surrender our life to Jesus, when we open up our hearts, we surrender, we invite Christ in, he fills us, he regenerates us, he makes us new, the Holy Spirit changes our heart, we go from dead to alive. So that means that the opposite of that deadness is the idea of being fully alive. So what he's done for us in Christ is he's taken our dead nature and he's turned it into this fully alive, which means that we have full, real, abundant, true life here on earth when we're walking with Jesus. Life in its fullness. It doesn't mean life is easy. doesn't mean things are great. doesn't mean you're going to drive a Lamborghini. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it means is that your dead nature is gone and you have access to holy, mighty, majestic God through Christ. You have access to full, true, abundant life. It means though, even though life may throw you difficult things, we are not overwhelmed, we are not overrun, we are not afraid, we do not worry, we find joy in the face of triumph. Even when life throws us those most difficult, awful things, terrible diagnosis, difficult stuff, we have this glimmer of hope that rises through our soul. Why? Because we are fully alive and God has given us access to his heart. And our aliveness is actually access to the heartbeat of God. And how do we have that? Through Jesus. So Christ's life actually gives, and death actually gives us access to the full heart of God. And Ephesians talks about having the full mind of Christ. This is what Christ's death does. When we surrender and we give our lives over to him, we have access to the full mind of Christ and the full heart of God. It means we are no longer our own. We no longer have to decide our own path. We trust in the one that knits all things together, that made you, that breathed life into your lungs, that knows what unfolds, and that holds all of eternity in his hands. To be fully alive in the first sense means that for the first time, when you give your life to Jesus, life takes on a different sense. It has a different purpose, different movement. The things that matter to the world don't necessarily need to matter to you. Right? The things that we gather and try and store here from a material standpoint, the recognition we try and attain from people, all the way that we chase our sinful cravings and the things, they dissipate and disappear because the things of God of eternal significance rise to the top and those things become the things that matter because they're the things that are the heartbeat of God. It's why we want to see the world come to know Christ. When you give your life to Jesus, you exchange yourself first right, for who God is. It's why the movement of the believer dies to self when we give our life to Jesus because we've been made fully alive here. What's the heartbeat of God? That people would know him. What's the heartbeat of the believer? That people would know him. So to be made fully alive in the first sense is that we have full life here on earth, like real life. 
Like we can find great and overwhelming joy outside of what we are called, told, labeled. We have full real joy because of Jesus. The second thing is it carries that second promise, right? What was the second part of being dead? Eternal separation from God, do the wrath at that day of judgment, and hell. Well, to be made fully alive, that continuation of our fullness of life here on earth actually carries over into eternity, that when we draw our last breath, we stand before God on that terrible day of judgment, but the believer has no fear. Why? Because I have an advocate that is Christ Jesus who stands on my behalf, covering my sin, exchanging my sin for his righteousness. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He exchanges our sinfulness for his righteousness on that day of judgment. We are sealed in Christ and we are promised eternity with the God that made us. Which means when death comes, we have no fear. Like We can be afraid of the process of dying, but death, you hold no mastery over the believer. It's just the beginning of eternal life with Christ. So what God has done for us truly is he made us fully alive in both senses of the word. And if you're not living as a fully alive person, you have to ask yourself, what is wrong? God has taken me from the state of deadness to the state of aliveness. Why am I in despair? Why am I dealing with frustration or depression or anxiety or worry when God has declared me fully alive in him? Like I was that. I'm no longer that. Why? What do I need to release, let go of, turn loose of, step into my aliveness and believe and claim which God has already given me in Christ Jesus? Do not let the world which you've been set free of continue to hold captive what God has released. So he did that, right? We've got that first promise. He's made us alive. But then verse 6, he tells us that he's done something else for us too. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So something remarkable here, right? So here's what we know, that after Jesus walked this earth, sinlessly, perfectly, flawlessly for, all the, for those years, right? That after he was betrayed and handed over and put on a sham of a trial and beaten and crucified and ultimately killed, after his body was taken down from the cross, prepared with all of its spices and linens and wrapped and set in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, after the stone was rolled in front of it, after the seal of the Roman guard was placed on it, God did something miraculous, right? It's why we believe what we believe, that God raised Jesus from the dead. We don't have to go very far back to look at what transpired there. Ephesians 1, verse 18 says this. Paul says, I pray that even the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his inheritance of the saints, and the incomparable great power for those who believe, a power that is working in his mighty strength. Listen to this which he exerted in Christ when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand, in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. So when God raised Jesus from the dead, when he conquered death, and he raised Christ, he seated him at his right hand and gave him dominion and power and rule over all things pretty awesome, right? Like that's Jesus. This is the Jesus that we know and that we love and that we have given our life to. But Paul says something remarkable, right? Not only did God raise Jesus, verse 6, 
he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Now what in the world, right? This is Jesus who went through all this, was crucified, dead, buried, raised. God gave him this place of authority, right? The name that is above all names. He sees him at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. And Paul says, not only have you been made fully alive here on earth in this abundant truth that you have in Jesus and the promise of that eternal life, but that promise has something very tangible attached to it. You have been raised with Christ, and you have been seated with him in this incredible place of glory. Remarkable thing here. What that means essentially is this, that all the goodness that is due Christ is yours in him. All the goodness that is due Christ, all of his righteousness, all of those things that God has lavished on him are yours. Why? Because you are in Christ and he is in you. This is hard to grasp, but you've got to think about it for a moment. It's wrapped really well up in Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he talks about this incredibly great exchange, this exchange that's made by which Christ takes our sin and our death and we get his righteousness. He then conquers sin and death and is raised to this place at the right hand of God and that because we still have the righteousness of God, righteousness that comes through Christ, we are due all the incredible things that Christ has and is due. They're yours. And you did nothing to deserve any of it. None of it. Yet, or better yet, but God. So he's done these two distinct things in his great love and his incredible overwhelming richness of mercy, right? He has made you fully alive. And that means now. Like if you're not living as a fully alive Christian, you have got to re-examine your spiritual life and say, God, why am I living like a dead person? Why is life stripped of joy? Why is it stripped of this gladness? Why is it stripped of peace? Why is it filled with fear and anxiety? Why? You have given me something else. Why do I continue to be slave to a world that you have set me free of? We've been made fully alive. We can bank on that promise in the, world, in, to, in, the, in the eternity to come. But also, we've been given every great gift that comes to Christ, and we've been promised this place. Now, we're going to find out why here in just a minute. Why did God do that? Why did he give us all those promises? Why was it not enough just to say, here, you've been saved. Go play around in heaven. Because God's doing something very distinct. Listen to why he did it. Look at verse 7. In the, or look at verse seven. So he did this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in, the kindness, in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So he did this, why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So, so two things. So he did this, the why, is because of Really four things that we see in these passages because of his love, because of his mercy, because of his grace, and because of his kindness. Do you know what's not in there? Because of anything you did. So because of his love, his mercy, his grace, and his kindness. God did not look down on earth and go, man, Treb's really giving it the old college try, keeps messing up, but we're going to reward his effort with a little grace and a little effort and a little love and a little encouragement, I was fully dead. 
And so were you, and so was every person in Ephesus and everyone around the world. There is nothing about us in there. And the reason this is super important, and they hear me say this, this is super important because if you can do something to evoke the love of God, then you can do something to revoke it. So think about this. If some reason God were showing his mercy and his grace and his love and his kindness to us because we somehow warranted it, it'd mean that we could also do something that wouldn't warrant it and therefore it could be removed. So if any of this depends on us, you should shudder because that means your failure can take it away. So if you have done anything to earn or merit or warrant God's mercy, grace, love, or kindness, then you better keep it up and don't fail and don't fall and don't mess up again or God may remove it. But that's not what Scripture says at all. It says you did nothing. In fact, the only reason God chose to save you or save those in Ephesus or save me or save whoever he chooses is because of his love and his mercy and his grace and his kindness and nothing about you, which means it's God's initiative. He does and he will not remove. Therefore, you cannot do something to unearn or unwarrant or revoke the love of God, which means when you walk out of these doors and you screw up and you will, and you probably have already, as I will. We are not then due the revocation of God's love because of our mistake, because we didn't earn it in the first place. God lavishes his love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness upon humanity, and we can do nothing to earn it and nothing to have it removed. It means we don't live in fear. That's why confession and repentance are the greatest tool of the believer because, God, I don't deserve any of this, yet I confess and I repent and I turn and I want to live differently because of what you have freely given me, not because I'm trying to earn something from you. Right? We please people in our life typically because we want something from them. I mean, just have a child. Everything that they do, and the reason they do it is because there's either some punishment or something, or they're trying to get something. Very seldom is it just because they're doing something out of the greatness of how you love them as a parent. It's always for something else. The reality is we do that with God also. But it always falls short. Our response, living in obedience, should be because of what God has done freely for me. Not because I have to, but because I get to. I love to tell people about Jesus, not because I get a higher place or I'll be seated just above Tim and Gay in heaven, right? <laughs> I get to tell people about the God that took me from death to life. That's my only motivation, is that I was dead in my sin and deserved to be there, yet but God, with his great love and rich in mercy, saved me, and I don't want anyone to live in death anymore. And so the only reason this transpires is because of God's love and mercy and grace and kindness to you. And you don't deserve it. Neither do I. And then the last part of that, the reason why, is pretty remarkable. So what is for, he says this, in order that in the coming ages, God might show his incomparable riches of grace expressed in the loving kindness of Christ. So God saves us, redeems us, seats us at the right hand of the throne of God, giving us all the things that are due Jesus because he raised us up with Christ. Why? 
Well, it's this glorious expression for the ages to come of God's infinite and incredible grace. It means that we are walking, currently in this earth, walking, talking billboards for the grace of Christ. And it means for the ages to come, the Ephesians and those that follow will become evidence of God's goodness. Though they deserve death, God seated them at this place and we have the promise of what's to come. In other words, that all this points to what? God's infinite kindness and goodness. Therefore, if God could save me, chief of all sinners, as Paul would say, right? You are due God's grace and mercy and love and kindness as well. God raised you and seated you with Christ so that you might be an instrument to display his grace to the world. While you draw breath, and as the Ephesians, as a promise to point to, that even that group of broken, sinful, Gentile, remember the God, goddess they worshipped, right? All of those things they were before Jesus, God redeemed and drew them out, and they stand as beacons of light for all ages to come, pointing to only one thing, God's loving kindness. He did it because he's good. So this is the floodgate of grace that we run into, right? What we deserve versus what we get. That we were fully sinful and dead, slave to the world, ruled by Satan and do the nature of God's wrath. Dead, nothing to do, no amount of crying, weeping, begging would do anything. No amount of showing up at church and feeding the homeless and nothing changes anything. But God, who is great at love and rich in mercy, did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, made you fully alive, took you out of your deadness, and we surrender our life to Christ, out of our deadness in life, into a full life, which we are called to live today, and the promise of eternal life to come. We aren't afraid of death. We have an advocate in Jesus in which on that day he will stand before us, declare us righteous, and we are due all the righteousness that comes with Christ. That God raised us with him, out of his mercy and grace and love and kindness only, something we can't exchange or lose or can be revoked, meaning no matter what you screw up today, God will not remove it. You are his, sealed by the Holy Spirit. And you stand as this beautiful evidence of God's loving kindness to the watching world and for ages and ages and ages to come. So the question we're going to face next week is, how does this change how we live today. Because this is the glorious exchange. We know who we were to who we are. And so today, what you've just seen in this giant nutshell is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no better way to explain it than Ephesians 1 through 7. It is the picture of our condition versus what Christ has done and who we are. The question that we have as followers of Christ now that we've been made fully alive is how does that change the way that we live? So this morning as we close our time in worship, we're going to let the truths of being made fully alive resonate in our heart. We're going to carry that in next week to figure out how my life changes in light of the fact that I have been truly saved. Saved, delivered, moved. What changes now? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your grace. We thank you for the reality of your mercy, for the promise, Lord, that comes with your kindness and for the fact that your grace is lavished upon us in ways that we don't understand nor expect nor can even explain. 
Lord, as I was going through this all week, it's just so hard for me to wrap my, my head around it because I am such a sinful, broken, sad, hard, difficult, rough person. Yet, yet you love me. I don't know why. I certainly don't earn it or deserve it. Yet you love me. And yet you saved me. And yet you've redeemed me. And, and those of us in here that are giving our lives to Christ, Lord, I want those truths to remain the same. I want those questions to press on our heart. Like, God, I don't deserve what you've given me. I'm not a good person. I didn't earn it. The only reason there's anything good in me is because you. You fill me. You dwell in me. You move. Lord, that's who you are in us. You are great at love and rich in mercy. And Lord, even though I've seen your love and your mercy, I'm still so bad at it. And yet you love us and carry us. You have given us full life in Christ that is both here on earth and the promise of abundant life. You have done all this when we couldn't do it for ourselves and we can't lose it or revoke it or have it removed. You're just so good. So Lord, the truth of all this giant conglomeration of two weeks is really this. As for me, dead in my sin, but because of God's love, I'm fully alive. Lord, as we stand and close our time in worship, make those truths resonate through our soul. Let's stand together and close in worship. Today for closing, as we respond, we're going to teach you guys a brand new song, and I don't normally like to do that as a closer, because I like everybody's voices singing for a lot of reasons. Some of them are selfish, but this song is so perfect in its response. I would encourage you, don't zone out. Don't think about where you're headed for lunch or anything else. If you don't know the song, just take it in, take in the truth, and respond in your heart to what the Lord is teaching us today. Buried beneath my rebellion I was lost without hope of redemption I was blind in my need for a savior Oh, but God I was crushed by the weight of my failure I was living the lie I created I was digging my grave without knowing, oh, but God, oh, but God, rich in mercy. for your freedom cause you were the one that I needed oh but God resurrected my heart from the ruins my rescue came through like the morning and now this is my sure testimony Jim.
Lord a hand this morning. Here's the reality. You have been made fully alive in Christ. It is time to actually live that way. Take the truth of who you were and who God has made you to be in Jesus and live fully alive. Don't let the lives of the world and the sinful cravings and all the ways you used to live guide your life. You have been removed. Take the despair and the worry and the anxiety and all of those things and crumple them and toss them because you are alive in Christ. For as you were, but God in his great and infinite love, you are now. Go in peace.